was awesome as it has been um, to continue to increase and, and grow, um, you know what would really be great? What would really matter? What would be truly significant? If we could just get a few more people of influence, right? Like, I know some of you have friends who are well-educated, they can speak well, they can really put their thoughts together in a way that's uh, persuasive. Um, some of you have friends who've, who've done really well for themselves. They, they've come into some money. Maybe they've got lucky. Maybe they worked really hard and, uh, and, and, and they've got some money. Maybe you have friends who are in politics or have significant sway. Um, and if we could just have a handful more of those people, that would really put our church on the map, right? That would be a church that was significant. Um, if we had a few more of those kinds of people, people who are who are notable and have, have sway in the community. Um, I've, I've instructed our welcome team, our connect team, um, that as they usher people in, just to um, be on the lookout for those kinds of people. You know, watch for people who are well-dressed, well-kept, who carry themselves with confidence. Um, honestly, like some designer labels kind of tip off as to, you know, the, the status that they might have. And, uh, and make sure those people get a, a good welcome and are brought in, given a, a good seat, um, put, put in a, a prominent place, really, so partly our live stream would mostly pick up those kinds of people, right? And it just kind of gives that right, that air. Um, and, uh, and that would just help us attract the right kind of people. And, and of course, you understand, th- those of you who have maybe a handful of kids or, you know, life just hasn't gone your way and you haven't you know, really prospered financially. That's okay. We love you. We want you to be here. Um, but, uh, you know, we're working on an overflow in the back and, 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 you know, maybe our ushers will just shepherd you gently in that way so that we have a little more prime seating um, for those, uh, for, the, for the right kind of people, right? And of course, you understand this is, this is good for all of us, right? Right? Some of you are laughing. I'm glad nobody stormed out. No! <laughs> Please, no. What a horrible thing to say. That is so wrong. The church should never operate that way. Um, I think our live stream went down, so I'm glad that wasn't recorded. Um, No, it's not how the church works. Now, I want to clarify, we are excited. It is great to see the church growing, to see more people here. We actually, we are working on, hopefully next week or in, in Weeks near to come, we'll have uh, some overflow in the back for a little more space. So if, if you're a shepherd back there next week, don't take offense. That's not what's going on. Don't like check to see if you showered. It's okay. Um, but uh, if we're honest, we feel that pull, don't we? I mean, it's not that hard to imagine. Maybe not as obvious as I just kind of laid out, but... We feel the draw to social status, to people that we feel like will, will bring us up a little bit. And, and as, as individuals, we, we want to be identified with, with those kinds of people, with people that matter. And it doesn't take much by way of imagination to conceive uh, of a wealthy person coming in and getting just, without even thinking about it, a little bit of royal treatment. They're, they're brought in, they're, they're given a, a prime seat, the people around them are all smiling at them, thinking, boy, I hope they stick around. And at the same time, a homeless man comes in off the street, and, and he doesn't smell so great, and, and the greeters are wondering, is he going to stay, or is he just going to ask for money and leave? And, you know, one of them just kind of casually takes a post beside the offering box just to keep an eye on it, and 
And they're seated a little bit off to the side. We don't want to make people uncomfortable that have to sit by them. And that's exactly what James is concerned about uh, in the church of his day. Um, Turn with me to James chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 1 to 13. If you don't have a Bible on you, there, uh, there should be one in the back of the pew in front of you. Just invite you to find that and uh, open it up to the book of James. Um, I have nothing for you. I have nothing of value. It's God's word that we come to together, and uh, that's where we want to turn our eyes. So we want you to have it open in front of you so that you can look down and see. Um, and, and the goal being that we walk out of here and, and nobody's thinking, that's interesting what John thinks, but rather look at what God's word says. Um, and so, um, as we look at this passage, we're not entirely sure if this is something that James had kind of heard about actually happening, if he's kind of responding to a real situation, uh, or if he's just warning about it theoretically. But, but he plays out a very similar situation that as, as we kind of just walk through warning the church against what he calls partiality. And uh, let, me, let me pray for us, and then we'll just work through this passage piece by piece. Would you pray with me? Father, we need you. God, how quickly uh, we become uh, judges with evil hearts. How quickly we are distracted um, from your glory and your grace, and we are focused on uh, worldly things. Forgive us. God, would you be at work changing our hearts right now? God, as we look into your word, that we would not be the man who looks intently and then walks away forgetting what he saw, but that we would be doers of the word. Um, Lord, not, not out of striving, not out of arrogance, but out of a transformed heart and a love for you and a, uh, a desire um, to walk with you. So, Father, um, give us insight. Give us clarity. Father, be with uh, me as I speak. Lord, if there's anything that I have planned to say that that is not uh, true to your word, God, would those words fall to the ground, uh, that your truth might go forward, that your word might be honored this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, we're just going to work through this piece at a time. We'll go from verse 1 to 13. Um, It's actually the longest single chunk we're going to take in our journey through the book of James. Um, But let me read verses 1 to 4 first here. And and what we see right off the bat is just it kind of sets up the situation. This is the example of partiality, the example of partiality. He says this, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold to the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So the reality is this is not a surprising development as we work through the book of James. Chapter 1 ended talking about God's religion, true religion that is pleasing to the Lord. This is the service of him, um, is this sacrificial love toward widows and orphans, toward those who are downcast and and outsiders. And uh, and so now he's just applying that same principle in the church. He's he's bringing it home. And, And yet I think, isn't it interesting how... Love toward the downtrodden and the outcast 
maybe catches us off guard sometimes. I mean, it's, it's one thing when you do your, you know, your annual venture out at Christmas to serve soup at the soup kitchen. It's another thing if somebody knocks on your door, right? It's hard when it comes home and it's on our turf and it catches us off guard. And so James is just pushing this same truth a little further in. How quickly, without knowing it, um, we become what James calls uh, judges with evil thoughts. The word here that James uses in in verse 1 is translated partiality. Um, Some of your translations may say favoritism. It's a compound word in the the Greek, and and it literally means to to receive the face, right? And so it has this idea, probably a a Jewish colloquialism or... um, possibly a word that James just kind of made up on the spot. But the idea is accepting someone, receiving someone based on their exterior appearance. And maybe similar to our uh, phrase, we would say, don't judge a book by its cover. Specifically, James is warning against uh, receiving people or judging people based on uh, their social status. And the Roman culture was marked by a complicated system of layers of classes and and social statuses. And and, and those at the top had just about limitless power, could do anything, and and limitless wealth. And and they had all the prestige. When they walked into a, a city, everyone knew they were there. Everybody looked. And those at the bottom were treated as less than the dogs, quite literally. And dogs weren't treated very well. Um, they, they, were, they were meaningless to society. They were a burden. James doesn't tell us exactly what the status is of this first man, but uh, he comes in uh, wearing a gold ring, obvious enough that, that everybody notices it. And he's wearing what, what literally could be translated shining clothing. This is a man of luxury. He's putting it on. He does it well. And he is dressed to the nines, and he walks in and people notice. And at the same time is the poor man. And, uh, and he comes in wearing shabby clothes. So the, the word here is equally as dramatic. Uh, could be translated soiled or unclean or defiled. Um, he's dirty. He's filthy. And the welcome and treatment that these two men receive uh, is as different as their clothing. The rich man is given prime seating, the place of honor. You sit up here in the place of respect, and we, we, want to, we want everyone to know that you're here. The poor man is told there's some standing room at the back. Or perhaps, if you'd like, you can, you can sit here by my feet. Actually, the, again, the, the literal rendering there could be beside my footstool. So picture it. I'm not even willing to give up my footstool, but you can sit on the ground beside it if you like. All of this based purely on their outward appearance, based on their clothing. They they don't know these guys from Adam. They don't know who they are. um, But one is dressed nice and the other is a mess. And so they're they're treated and seated according to that outward appearance. They just made these assumptions, these judgments. And so, uh, again, James 4, uh, or sorry, verse 4 says, um, you become judges with evil thoughts. That's not okay. This is not all right. This is not how the church of Jesus Christ ought to operate. And what we see in the the rest of this passage then um, is is kind of playing out first the the folly of partiality. This is the the foolishness of it. It it doesn't comport with reality. And then the sin of partiality, not not only is it foolish and wrongheaded, um, but, but it's outright sinful. And then finally the remedy for partiality. 
And so that's where we're headed. That's kind of our roadmap for today. Um, first, looking at verses 5 to 7, um, we see the folly of partiality. Let me read this for us. James writes, Listen, my brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. And are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? And James is being a little bit hyperbolic here, intentionally stereotyping, right? Um, he, he's not saying that every single rich person uh, is wicked and every poor person is a saint. Um, we all know that's not the case. And actually, if you go down to verse 21, he's going to talk about Abraham, who was a very rich man as an example of faith. And so um, that's not the point. The point is that their judgment that they've made isn't necessarily accurate. It's based on faulty principles. It's based on their outward appearance, and, and it doesn't tell the right story. Now, it's fair to know that, that in one way their judgment is quite accurate, right? They, they probably got it right from a worldly perspective. Most likely the man in the in the splendid clothing, is very rich and powerful and influential. And, and the, the man clothed in the shabby clothing most likely is of no worldly significance. If this, was a, if this was an earthly parable, if you were to find this in Aesop's fables, how would this end? You would find out at the end that, oh, the shabby clothed man was actually the king. He really actually is a man of, of great importance in this world. That's not where James goes with this. Their judgment is accurate from a worldly perspective. The problem is their perspective. They're missing the bigger picture. And the perspective of the kingdom of God and eternity is what's missing. The problem is they're, they're so short-sighted, they're so narrow-minded and, and swayed by the, the power structures and systems of this world. And, and those things are not ultimate. The, those things don't matter in reality near as much as we think they do. And so... Yes, the poor man may have nothing to offer by way of worldly influence. And yet, that should not be a significant concern to us as a church. He is not, God doesn't see that the same way we do. And James says, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom that he promised to those who love him? It's a rhetorical question he has. God has chosen many who are poor in the world to be rich in faith. On the contrary, wealth is dangerous. The, the love of money, Paul says, is the root of all kinds of evil. And, and Jesus warns, you can't serve both God and money. You can't do it. You have to choose one or the other. Those who are rich because they've given themselves over to the love of money, because they serve wealth, they cannot be followers of Christ. And hence, it was the rich who were harassing the church, who were dragging them into court, who were blaspheming in the name of Christ. They're the ones who are so caught up in this worldly system and worldly way of thinking that, that they hate the church and they're fighting against it. And James is saying that wealth in and of itself doesn't give someone dignity and honor. It doesn't do it. It doesn't make someone an asset to the church. And, and that's why the wealthy are the ones who attack you. And on the contrary, how often? 
How often does God use the lack of money in our lives to bring us to our knees, to humble us, to, to put us on the ground before him? How often has the lack of money been used by the Lord first to, to bring someone to salvation, help them see they have, they have no, uh, nothing in this world and need something else, but then to grow them and to mature them in faith, to help them learn to, to trust in him. The acquisition of wealth tempts us to prioritize the world, to, see, uh, to, to, to set our hearts on the comforts of the here and now. Again, these are, these are not decisive factors. These are not ultimate realities. It's not as though every rich person is rich because they serve money instead of the Lord. That's not the point here. But, but these are strong winds that blow against us. And if we're judging on merely those exterior factors, we're missing it. And many who are poor in the eyes of the world are rich in the depths of their faith. And, and those that have no earthly estate, maybe don't even have a bank account, are heirs of the, the, the limitless glory of the kingdom of God. We need to see people through that lens. We need to, to see reality as it is from God's perspective, how, how light and meaningless the, the power structures of this world really are, how temporary wealth is. How little those things speak to what really matters, a sincere faith and, a, and, and the holiness of character. We need to judge like our Heavenly Father judges. You remember the selection of David as king, right? God sent Samuel out, told him um, one of Jesse's sons is going to be king. And Samuel headed over to the home of Jesse, and, uh, and Jesse trotted out, all seven of his tall, strong, impressive sons. And as the first one came out, Eliab, um, Samuel, like, hey, job is done. That was easy. Look at this guy. He's tall. He's handsome. He's strong. Um, this is my guy. He's impressive. He carries himself with confidence. And Samuel says, let's go. Let's anoint him. Let's get this over with. And then 1 Samuel 16, 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So one by one, the seven sons of Jesse are walked out in front of Samuel, and the Lord says, not my guy, not my guy, not my guy, not my guy. Finally, bewildered, uh, Jesse sent out to the field to get the other son, like the one that wasn't even invited to this party. Can you imagine sitting around the dinner table and then the night before and Jesse says, hey, Samuel called. Uh, he's coming by tomorrow. One of my sons is going to be king. One of you guys is going to be king over Israel. So David, can you go watch the sheep tomorrow while we have this? Um, we'll let you know how it turns out, right? Like talk about deflating. And yet... David comes in from the field. He's been working out amongst the sheep. He's dirty and smelly. He's the smallest. He's, he's unimpressive. And, and God says, that's my guy. That's the one I've chosen. The Lord doesn't look at the outward appearance. He's not impressed by that. He looks at the heart. Now, we don't see the heart the same way God does, for sure. 
But we can definitely learn to look beyond that outward exterior, beyond the appearance. And to give so, so much less consideration of, of wealth and worldly status. And to ascribe far more value to, to depth of faith, and maturity in Christ and holiness of character. Those are things that the Lord values and things that we ought to value. When we get to eternity and, and we look back at this world from that perspective, man, we are going to see things we never thought we'd see. We're going to see people who were poor and homeless in this world, who we would say uh, were just rejected from society, whose lives were so menial. And from that perspective, we're going to see, oh, they had a greater impact, more significant influence in this world and into eternity than than any wealthy businessman, than any king in all of his glory. How often are the, the successful businessmen the ones who are considered immediately for elders in the church? Oh, you, you've, you've done well in business. You, you will necessarily do well in leading the church. It, it's just not a one-to-one comparison. And it shows how, how quickly our eyes are set on the wrong things. We fail to see what the Lord sees. And we fail to value what the Lord values. That's the the folly of partiality. It's not reality. It's not seeing the world as it truly is from from an eternal perspective, which is to say the true perspective. Don't dismiss those who the world dismisses. Don't value people based on on their worldly values. Partiality is indeed foolish, but it doesn't stop there. James goes on to say, It's also sin. Look with me at verses 8 to 11. Um, We see the sin of partiality. If you really fulfill the royal law, according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So there are a couple of layers here as James kind of pushes into this. Um, What does he mean here? He says the royal law. If you fulfill the royal law, you do well. Well, he's just referred to the kingdom of God, and, and above that in verse 1, um, as Jesus, Jesus Christ as the Lord, the Lord of glory, the, the master, the ruler, that's a, that's a royal term there. The royal law is the law that the subjects of Jesus follow in the kingdom of God. What is it specifically? Well, he sums it up in one phrase, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. It's a quote from Leviticus 19.18 where that, that command is given to the people of Israel, but it's more than that. This is the command that Jesus took hold of. Matthew 22, the, the Pharisees are trying to corner Jesus. They're trying to trap him with difficult questions, and they asked him, uh, what's the most important command? Like trying to pit God against himself. And Jesus is so wise, and, and he just he answers them saying first, Matthew 22.37, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. 
And then he follows that saying that there's a second command that's, that's like it, and that is to love your neighbor as yourself. And, and on these two commands, the whole law and prophets depend. Everything flows down from that. If you keep those laws, you love God with everything you are, and you love others as yourself, you'll keep the whole law because it all trickles down from there. And so James is reminding these churches of how citizens of the kingdom of God ought to behave, how they ought to think and act as the subjects of Jesus, pointing back to this, this royal command, the command of Jesus to love your neighbor as yourself. And if you're showing partiality, if you're judging people based on that outward appearance, you're, you're treating them better because of what they might give you, oh, you're not keeping that law. You're not obeying that command and that sin. So that's his first point. This is sin, but James knows our tendencies. As a sinner himself, he gets how we think, and, and so he keeps pushing on this because he knows what we're going to say is, well, sure, technically it's a sin, right? But it's not like a bad one. It's not like I killed somebody. It's not like a, like a sin sin. It's kind of like driving nine kilometers an hour over the speed limit, right? Like it's, it's breaking the speed limit, but nobody's going to pull me over for it. Right? I'm not going to get prosecuted for this. James says, you don't understand the law of God. Think about this. Whoever keeps the whole law and fails at just one point. One point. I did everything else perfect from birth until today. I honored my parents completely. I never stole a single thing. I have never so much as told a white lie. But when that rich man came in, I was drawn to him. I wanted to get to know him. I wanted to benefit from associating with him. And, and so I tried to, to treat him well, and I treated him better than the poor man who came in. And that's it. That's the only thing I've ever done. And James says, you have moved from the category of lawkeeper to lawbreaker, just like that. Islam has categories of sin. There are, there are major sins that are, that are significant, that have significant consequences and warnings, and then there are minor sins that just aren't quite as big a deal. Catholicism has venial sins and mortal sins. Venial sins will, will bruise your relationship with God. They, they, they strain it a little bit, but a mortal sin will, will break your relationship with God. A mortal sin is very serious. James says, any sin, any deviation from the perfect law of God at any point makes you a lawbreaker. Think of God's law as, a, as this perfect chain from which we hang over the judgment of God. And, and that chain might be in great shape. Every link looks perfect except one. And one link in the chain breaks. What happens? Well, the chain is broken. It no longer holds. It's only one link. There's like a hundred links. It doesn't matter. And here's why. Verse 11, James says, Because he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Notice, it's not about the law. And it's not about the sin. It's about the lawgiver. It's about who gave the law. It's about he who said. That's where the answer is. The law is not just a series of unrelated commands 
It's not just a list of boxes to check to hope that I can check more than I leave unchecked. The law is a reflection of the very character of God. It was one of my favorite parts going through the book of Exodus last year and just really digging into the Ten Commandments and understanding the richness there in a new way. That God says, do not murder. Not because of some arbitrary rule, not because there's some moral structure outside of God that he adheres to. Not because the world just works best that way. Like It's just best if we don't all murder. That would be you know, Jordan Peterson, super popular. That's kind of his take on religion. It's just, a, it's just the world works better if we believe Christian principles. It's not that God is actually true. No, the law of God exists. The law do not murder exists because God is the God who loves life. In the essence of his being, the core of his nature, he overflows in a delight in the abundance of life. That's why murder is bad, because it opposes the character, the nature of God himself who created this world. Now, that is why our world works better when we don't murder, because it's in line with the character of the God who created it. That's why Jesus treats the law the way that he does. Matthew 5, 21, 22, he says, hey, You have heard it said, do not murder. I say to you, everyone who's angry with his brother is liable to judgment. You, you've broken the command, do not murder, with simply being angry. God, that's not fair. You just, you just move the goalposts. You just change the game entirely, right? No. No, it was always that way. How can he say that? How can he say that the law against Murder is broken by simply being angry because anger moves in the direction of murder. It means that it's moving contrary to who God is. And the God of creation and, and life says, no, this is what is good. Don't deviate from that at all. And that's the case with all the commandments. They're all statements about the character of God. And, and so it's not about the nature of the command that you broke. It's about the nature of the God that you've sinned against. And any sin, any deviation from God's perfection makes us a transgressor. And not just of his law, but of his glorious character. Romans 3.23, we all grew up memorizing, if you grew up in the church, all have sinned and fall short of what? Not the law. Fall short of the glory of God. That's what he's talking about. That's where the law comes from. That's the, the essence of it. It's the glory of God that matters. And, and so, yes, in a sense, there are sins that have greater consequences in this world and in eternity. But all sin, any sin, is a deviation from the, the glorious perfection of who God is and, and makes us transgressors, makes us lawbreakers. And in that, we are worthy of his wrath. We have opposed the perfect, glorious God who deserves all of our worship and obedience, and we've not kept it. Yes, even the sin of partiality. Why? Romans 12, 11. God does not show partiality. That's not in his nature. God doesn't choose people or love people more specifically God did not choose you because of something you would add to him because you would be better for him 
because of your goodness or your potential based on anything in you whatsoever. Man, I grew up with that. I grew up first knowing the gospel and fighting against it, and then God saved me and helped me to see the wonder of his grace, and I still had in the back of my head, God, aren't you lucky that you chose me? I get it. It makes sense. Like, no. And God had to crush that pride in me to see that that his salvation of me was, was not because of anything good in me, but based only on his goodness and his grace. Our partiality toward others and our assumption that it, that it isn't sinful, or at least not that sinful, is oftentimes rooted in an underlying assumption that, that God is partial. And that he saved me because I was special, at least just a little bit. Right? The reason I'm a Christian rests in me because I'm just a little bit smarter I was just a little bit better a little bit wiser a little more moral a little more humble that's the reason I came to faith that's the difference between me and that sinner over there it's it's me it's something I did that's not true Romans 9 16 says this about your salvation therefore it does not depend on human will or exertion but on God who has mercy it's him who does it we're sinners, lawbreakers, every one of us deserving hell. And the only way that any one of us escapes that, even for a moment, is mercy. It's God freely giving his grace. You're the poor man. You're the one who walks into the room with nothing to offer. We are the undeserving. And that brings us then to the remedy for partiality. Look at uh, verses 12 and 13 with me. So speak and so act. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is the remedy. James led us to a pretty vulnerable place at the end of verse 11. We ought to hit that point pretty broken and crumbled, reminding us that the law is the reflection of God's glorious perfection, that any deviation whatsoever from his impeccable standard leaves us guilty, leaves us transgressors of the law deserving of death and hell. And from here he returns back to how we treat other people. And he says that we ought to speak and act. And, and that's a, a Jewish way of saying everything you do, in word and in deed, the totality of your life ought to be lived as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. What does he mean by that? What, what is the law of liberty? First we have the royal law and now the law of liberty. What's he talking about? That we see ourselves as sinners. That we deserve nothing but God's wrath, and yet because of what Jesus has done, because of his perfect sinless life and death on the cross, taking the penalty on himself that we deserved, those who trust him will be judged by the law of liberty, judged as those who have been set free from the power of sin and death. Judged not on the basis of, of what I have done and how well I've kept the law, but based on the 
grounds of how Christ has kept the law and his righteousness imputed, given to me. That's the law of liberty. It's the gospel. How does that change the way you perceive people? When we see ourselves in that light as a wretched sinner saved by grace, what room is there left to look down on others? What room is there left to think that I am any better than anyone else? We have our hope in Christ alone. When our, our salvation and, and forgiveness in him is the core of our identity, why would we judge on the basis of earthly things? Things that are so temporary, like worldly wealth and status and influence, why would that sway us? And I think this ought to draw our minds uh, back to the very beginning of this passage Chapter 2, verse 1, he opened this saying that we are to hold fast to the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. There's so much in that little phrase, our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. We, we could do a sermon series on that alone. Um, first of all, if you've ever wondered who Jesus is, like look no further. That's huge. He is the Lord of glory. That's pretty clear Old Testament language um, for Yahweh, the creator God, the one true God, the God of all glory, the God who says, Isaiah 42 eight, my glory I will not give to another. Yahweh is the Lord of glory. And Jesus is the Lord of glory. It's, it's the Trinity. They're God. And Jesus is God himself come down. In human flesh. But this picture of Jesus in his glory, it, it actually brings up other kind of New Testament imagery. Most often as we see this language through the New Testament, uh, it's Jesus as judge. Matthew 16, 27, For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Jesus will be the final judge, the ultimate judge. We ought to live with our eyes fixed on the Lord of glory. Not impressed and swayed by worldly things, not, not pulled about by showing partiality to other people, but rather showing partiality, as it were, to him. He's the one that we defer to. He's the one that we serve. The glorious Lord who will judge us in the end. That's the one that we should give our attention to. So there's this interesting phrase then, verse 13, um, this is the why we ought to live as those who will uh, be judged under the law of liberty because judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Those who don't have that sacrificial love to the downtrodden from, from chapter 1, verses 26, 27, right, the, the, the caring for the widows and the orphans. Those who continue to show partiality to the rich, overlooking, ignoring the, the poor and the downtrodden, they will be judged without mercy. That's terrifying. Jesus says the same thing, but from the opposite angle, Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. James has just flipped that on his head. Cursed are the unmerciful, for they will not be shown mercy. James is coming back to this idea of authentic faith. 
Back to the reality that if, if, if your faith has not changed you, it has not saved you. True faith in Christ produces fruit. There's evidence of it working out in our lives. And he's saying if, if there's no mercy in you, then you, you need to question whether you've ever actually received mercy if you understand the mercy of God. True faith, a genuine trust in Christ, has visible effects. And one of those effects is that it produces mercy, a softness, a tenderness. Those who have truly experienced the mercy of God, who, who live as these wretched sinners, forgiven by grace, conscious that they will be judged undeservingly by the law of liberty, will be merciful people. How could it be otherwise? They will extend that, that same kind of impartial love to the people around them. So the more we see and know and cling to the mercy of God toward us, the more we hold tightly to the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ and fix our eyes on the, the Lord of glory, the more we will grow in genuine mercy. The more partiality will look like an ugly, ugly thing in our eyes. And the final climax to close this section, he says, mercy triumphs over judgment. That, that is the glorious truth. The final resounding note on which this world will end and that will ring out through eternity. That mercy triumphs over judgment. That's our, that's our hope. Is that eternal reality ring true in your heart. Loving, welcoming, inviting those who are outsiders, who have nothing to offer you, who could never pay you back, giving yourself out of the abundance of mercy you've received in mercy to others. Are we that kind of church that sees through the, the false veneer of worldly success that isn't taken in by valuing the things that the world values, but who loves people the way God loves them, who sees people the way Christ sees them, knowing how God loved us, how Christ has looked upon us in his mercy. Let's pray.